Listener discretion is advised. On Saturday, November 5, 1983, the Bifur Dolphin was drilling in the Frigg gas field in the Norwegian sector of the North Sea. Four saturation divers and two tenders were working under the surface of the water when a large explosion occurred. What caused the explosion and what was the fate of these six divers? Find out on this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. Hi everyone, I'm your host Alex and welcome back to Narcosis Into the Deep. This week we have a highly requested topic, the Bifurd Dolphin Diving Bell Accident. The show's patrons over on Patreon.com voted to hear this topic next, so let's go ahead and dive into this week's episode. First, I'm going to provide you a little bit of background on the drilling rig and the saturation diver's role before talking about the accident that occurred. The Bifur Dolphin was a semi-submersible, column-stabilized drilling rig operated by Dolphin Drilling, a Fred Olson Energy subsidiary. It drilled seasonally for various companies in the United Kingdom, Danish, and Norwegian sectors of the North Sea. This 3,025-ton rig held a crew of 102 people and had a maximum drilling depth of 20,000 feet, or 6,100 meters, and it could operate at a water depth of 1,500 feet, or 460 meters. As a drilling rig, the Bifurd Dolphin was equipped with advanced drilling equipment and originally met strict levels of certification under Norwegian law, though in later years it was banned from Norwegian waters. To work at such incredible depths while minimizing risks, we have what are called saturation divers. The idea of saturation diving was first born in the 1963 U.S. Navy's Genesis Project. Genesis was the world's first saturation diving studies, and Sealab 1 was the Navy's first open water saturation diving experiment in which divers worked and lived in a bottom sitting habitat at 193 feet depth, or 58.5 meters, for 11 days. Saturation diving is one of the most well paid jobs that exist today. Generally speaking, saturation divers can make between $30,000 to $45,000 a month. With added quote-unquote depth pay, which can pay an additional $1 to $4 per foot, these wages can add up to over $180,000 per year. But there's a reason why saturation divers make so much money. It's one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. During saturation diving, your body stays under pressure for so long that your body tissues become in equilibrium with the inert gases in the breathing mixture, either helium or nitrogen. These saturation divers leave the safety of dry land and enter pressurized living quarters after which they are transferred down into an underwater habitat via a diving bell. Once these divers become saturated, they stay under the intense pressure and breathe a mixture of oxygen and helium for weeks or until their tour of duty is over and they can be decompressed. 
Decompression alone can take up to two weeks, depending on the depth that these divers are working at. In these conditions, life is exhausting, claustrophobic, and intense. Breathing this specialized mixture causes chills throughout their entire body due to the helium, and there's an array of medical complications that can arise from long-term exposure to harsh depths alongside an almost constant risk of death. Several strict regulations are enforced to minimize the risks of these issues, such as mandatory diving times and forced time off. Grouped together, these risks result in saturation diving becoming one of the most specialized jobs in the world. A 2015 report showed that there were 3,300 commercial divers working in the United States. Of those 3,300 commercial divers, only 336 of them were saturation divers. At this point in time, however, saturation diving is safer than it has ever been. But one wrong move and the implications are deadly. The most infamous example of this is the Bifurd Dolphin explosive decompression accident. Just a quick note here, the original accident report is written in Norwegian, so apologies if I get some of the translated material wrong. I'll link the report in the episode's description if you just happen to speak and read Norwegian. On board the Bifurd Dolphin, the chamber system that the divers live in during their working time is near the water surface, but it's pressurized to their working depth. At the time of the accident, it was pressurized to 9 atmospheres, or about the same pressure as being 295 feet or 90 meters below the surface. Because the chambers are near the surface, the pressure on the outside of the chamber is only one atmosphere, which is equivalent to the pressure that we feel standing at sea level. From the chamber, the saturation divers can enter a diving bell and take it to the seafloor to where they will begin their work. Just outside the chamber, two tenders, or aka assistants, work on clamping and unclamping the diving bell to and from the chamber system. The diving bell connects to chamber 1 via a trunk. There's two hatches or doors here, one for the diving bell and one for the other end of the trunk going into chamber 1. Just off to the left of chamber 1 is chamber 2. There's just enough space in each chamber for two divers to live in, so four divers total. And I know it can be a little hard to picture this in an audio podcast, so make sure you head over to the podcast Instagram page at NarcosisPod to see diagrams of the chambers. In a normal sequence of events, the following steps would occur. The diving bell is attached to the trunk to chamber 1 by the dive tenders. The trunk is then pressurized to 9 atmospheres. The saturation divers leave the bell and enter chamber 1 via the trunk closing the diving bell hatch behind them. The saturation divers then enter chamber 1. The dive tenders then increase the pressure inside the trunk slightly to ensure that the diving bell hatch is sealed tightly. Chamber 1 door is then closed, and from here the trunk is slowly depressurized to one atmosphere, and after this is complete, the dive tenders can then release the clamp to separate the diving bell from the chamber system. So I know that's a lot of steps back to back, so just to recap, basically what happens is the dive tenders attach the diving bell to the trunk, 
which is then pressurized. The saturation divers leave the bell, enter the chamber system, the doors are closed, and the pressure to that trunk is slowly released back down to outside pressure levels, so one atmosphere. From there, the chamber system and the diving bell are still pressurized, but they can be removed from each other without any issues. This is the normal sequence of events, but November 5th, 1983 was anything but normal. The saturation divers on board at the time of the incident were British divers Edwin Arthur Coward, 35 years old, Roy P. Lucas, 38, and Norwegian divers Jorn Giver Bergersen, 29, and Truls Helvik, 34. The two dive tenders that were working during this incident were William Crammond, 32, and Martin Saunders. At 4 a.m., divers Edwin and Roy were resting in Chamber 2 as the diving bell returned from the seabed where divers Jorn and Truls were carrying out various duties. The two dive tenders were outside the bell and began connecting it to the trunk leading to Chamber 1. After the bell was connected, divers Jorn and Truls entered Chamber 1 and then Truls began working on closing the hatch leading from the trunk into Chamber 1. Before Trolls could complete this task, in less than 0.1 to 0.5 seconds, all four divers were dead. One dive tender, Martin Saunders, survived, and the other, William Crammed, was fatally injured and would later die during transport to a nearby hospital. In a flash, four out of the six divers were dead, and one of the dive tenders was fatally injured. What caused this violent and horrific accident? The answer is both simple and complex. Rapid decompression. We've talked about rapid decompression before on the podcast, most notably the death of Chris and Chrissy Roos in the Shadow Divers episode. But this rapid decompression is on an entirely new level, and multiple factors played into what caused this accident. So let's go ahead and cover what happened step-by-step per the accident investigation report. At 4.01 a.m., the bell was connected to the chamber. A diver on deck reported to the diving supervisor, who's a person on board the rig, not in the water, that the locking mechanism was in place. The door between the trunk and the chamber system was then opened and the saturation divers began transferring equipment to the living quarters. The two other saturation divers were asleep in chamber two. At 4.08 a.m., the second saturation diver left the bell, and the diving supervisor slightly increased the pressure in the trunk in order to secure the seal on the door and check for any leaks. At this point, the locking mechanism failed and the bell was blasted away in great force away from the chamber. Pressure inside the chamber was lost within seconds, and all four divers inside were killed instantly. The two dive tenders, who were right outside the locking mechanism when it failed, were both badly hurt and one was gravely wounded. This can be a little hard to understand in an audio podcast, so think about it this way. You attach a balloon to a pump and you begin blowing it up. The pressure inside the balloon rises as you add air. But suddenly something slips and the balloon falls off of its connection to the pump and the air that's inside of it quickly releases 
causing the rubber balloon to fly away. That's sort of what happened here, but instead of the chambers flying away, the diving bell did. The pressure inside the chamber rapidly decreased, and the releasing pressure caused the diving bell to shoot away from the chamber system. The question addressed in the wake of the accident was why the locking mechanism failed. Following an investigation, the Norwegian Petroleum Directorate concluded that the direct cause of the accident was that the locking device connecting the bell to the chamber system was unlatched while the chamber was still under pressure. Nor were all the internal chamber doors locked. The accident was caused not by a mechanical fault in the locking device, but by a failure in routines. As a critical phase in this stage of the diving operation, the locking procedure made special demands for good and safe interaction between the diving supervisor and the dive tenders who are operating the locking mechanism. The diving supervisor should not have reduced pressure in the connecting tunnel until the divers had reported that they were finished and that the door between the chamber and the tunnel was closed. Once pressure in the tunnel, or trunk, had reached one atmosphere, the supervisor could then give the orders for the connecting lock to be removed. But somewhere along the line, that interaction failed. The diving supervisor and the diving assistants left out several stages in the normal procedure. The locking device was opened before the door into the chamber had been closed and pressure in the tunnel was reduced. It was not possible to determine why this happened since the diving assistant that removed the locking mechanism died in the accident. Otto Sounds, who participated in the internal inquiry, believes that the blame for this accident lay with unclear orders and a poor culture. The official inquiry report suggested that the divers involved in the accident had been subject to an inappropriate work routine during the time immediately before the accident. Between August 15th and November 5th, 38% of the Bell excursions exceeded the maximum permitted time of 8 hours. These excursions are measured between the disconnection from and the reconnection to the pressure chamber. Nor was a shift plan in place during the period in which the accident occurred and no log of working hours had been kept for the divers. The post-mortem autopsies were brutal. The bodies of the four dead saturation divers were sent off to be examined by Dr. Gersten, a professor of forensic medicine at University of Bergen. Trolls Helovic, the diver who was attempting to close the chamber hatch door at the time of the rapid decompression, was forcefully ejected out of the small chamber hatch. During the investigation, it was found that the chamber door was less than 2 feet or 60 centimeters in diameter. When his body was sent over to the university, it arrived in four plastic body bags. According to the autopsy report, all of his body parts showed some kind of fracture or wound. His scalp with long blonde hair was present, but the top of the skull and the brain were missing. The soft tissues of his face were found, but were completely separated from the bone. His left arm had been torn from his body just below the shoulder joint, and his right arm, while still attached, was torn to pieces. 
Troll's right thigh, leg, and foot were missing, but the knee joint was found. The left thigh had been separated from the pelvis just below the hip joint, and the pelvis itself was divided into three parts. All of his internal organs in his chest and abdomen had been expelled except for his trachea and a fragment of the small bowel. Even his spinal cord was forcefully removed from his body during the blast. It was found 33 feet or 10 meters above where the explosion occurred on the deck of the rig. At the time of the accident, the other three saturation divers were not near the chamber hatch and therefore were not forcefully ejected into the water. The other three divers died right at the spot that they were standing or sleeping in. For the autopsy on these three divers, the pathologist found one major detail in common. These next few sentences are straight from the autopsy report. Quote, The most conspicuous finding in this case was the presence of large amounts of free fat in the cardiac chambers and the great vessels, as well as in the small vessels of both the systemic and pulmonary circulation. The occurrence of fat embolism in decompression accidents is well known. However, an embolus is particulate matter transported by the bloodstream from one part of the body to another. In our cases, the blood must have begun to boil instantaneously, leading to an instantaneous and complete stop of circulation." End quote. In other words, the autopsy report states that the other three divers died instantaneously because at the time of the rapid decompression, their blood boiled. The only good news that comes out of this report is that the divers likely died instantly without suffering any pain. At the end of the autopsy report, even the pathologist argued that the Bifurth dolphin should be rebuilt in such a way that the trunk is impossible to be opened while pressurized. If it had been impossible for the dive tender to remove the clamp while the trunk was under pressure, all four saturation divers and the dive tender himself could still be alive today. An early investigation into the accident suggested that it was caused by human error. As William Cramid was killed in the accident, it is not known why he released the clamp before the chamber hatch was closed. Investigators surmised that a combination of fatigue and deck noise may have led to fatal miscommunication. Unfortunately, we're only human, and we make mistakes. At the time of the accident, the dive tenders had been working for 12 hours and 48 minutes. Anyone would be exhausted after working 13 straight hours. However, in a shocking twist, in 2006, an uncovered report suggested that faulty equipment was to blame, not human error. Despite recommendations from Norwegian oil and gas regulator, DNV, the saturation diving system had not been fitted with any interlocks, pressure gauges, or other safety features to prevent the diving chamber from being disconnected while pressurized. This fault in the equipment was not mentioned in the official accident report and as such, the families of the divers killed received no financial compensation. Believing the investigation to be a cover-up, the families formed the North Sea Divers Alliance, which finally succeeded in suing the Norwegian government in obtaining a settlement in 2008, 
25 years after the accident. Norway discovered oil on its continental shelf in 1971, just 12 years prior to the Bifurd Dolphin explosion. The period that followed saw a rush for oil in the North Sea, and at that point, the nature of the work carried out by the divers was often exploratory. Following the release of the report claiming that the accident was caused due to faulty equipment, Claire Lucas, daughter of saturation diver Roy Lucas, said, quote, I would go so far as to say that the Norwegian government murdered my father because they knew that they were diving with an unsafe decompression chamber, end quote. Stephen Lucas, Roy Lucas's son, states, quote, We never even received an apology, and that's disgusting. It was in December that we were told we did not meet criteria for compensation. It was then that my sister Claire contacted a solicitor, and when push came to shove, the Norwegian government decided to review the case. We ended up receiving a majority vote, and now we are being granted the compensation. But it doesn't matter, because no amount of money will be enough. End quote. While safety measures and accident rates have improved significantly since 1983, the Bifurd Dolphin incident stands as a stark reminder of the dangers that always come with living and working in extreme environments. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. I'm your host, Alex, and if you have any questions, please feel free to ask them on the podcast's Instagram page, at NarcosisPod, or on our Discord server. Both are linked in the episode's description. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate the podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there's always Patreon or sharing with a friend. Becoming a patron comes with many benefits, such as voting on what to hear next, exclusive updates, discounts on merchandise, and more. Thanks again, and I'll see you all next week.